Hello, and welcome to my second solo blogcast. This is Michael Smith, uh, here with Fusion Health Radio. Hope you're having a great day. Today I'm going to talk to you about what's called an awareness frequency practice, and there's lots to how that can go. Um, the context of an awareness frequency practice is to go deeper in to whatever practice you're involved in, uh, say it's meditation or yoga or martial arts or something like that. Uh, by developing a deeper relationship with your practice, you're going to develop more confidence. So I'm just going to walk into a few of those uh, traditional methods before I talk about specifically how I would do an awareness frequency practice. So one of my favorite ways to really dig deep and to get a lot of uh, momentum going in any practice is called a hundred days. You know, it could be a hundred days of meditation or qigong or stretching or strength training or whatever you're doing. And there's kind of an ABC part to this. So let's say you've committed 100 days, and I mean that with a capital K commitment in the sense that if you get to day 65 and then, you know, go out and on a bender and then miss a day, well, you're back to day one. And this is a really important part of the process because as athletes, as meditators, as spiritual warriors, um, it's uh, clear that the more confidence we have, the more experience in the past that we have that we can accomplish our goals, uh, in training and in life, that becomes more and more who we are, you know, and it's kind of like a little bit of a mojo bank account. So I can't actually remember how many times I've done a hundred days practice in the last 35, 40 years, but it's been a few. And I'm not saying that to sound all tough or anything like that. Uh, it's just that that's a part of my memory of myself and a part of how I would relate to a kind of grounded sense of confidence. Because if I decided at some point in the future to go and compete or to go into a, a deep goal with some practice that I have, I'm aware that I can do this 100 days thing and really accelerate my development and my awareness and my, my basically my knowledge. So this is how it would go. Obviously, you've picked something. You've picked 100 days. You're committed. You're scheduled. You're probably, you know, altering diet, uh, other sort of social things to make sure that you're not going to hit a big speed bump and have to start all over again because it's about discipline and devotion and commitment. So uh, here we are with our 100 days and there's this little ABC thing we do with it. So let's say it's day five and uh, I finished my practice and let's say for example I'm doing a standing meditation practice for 100 days. Day five, I've done my practice, I sit down with a cup of tea and I'm going to write down A what went well. And maybe I've been working with some alignment uh, tweak or hack with my knees and hips and ankles. And it's really feeling a lot different, you know, and maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, but at least it feels positive that I'm exploring something new. Because um, that's what training is, is getting your body to do something new. So B. B is about what isn't going so well. So say I'm really happy with whatever I'm doing with my hips and knees and ankles, but for some reason the angle of my pelvis doesn't seem right, or the way I'm sort of repositioning my, my body between my ribs and my pelvis doesn't feel very good. So that's what I'm going to write down for B, which is, okay, you know, maybe my core is too slack or my back is too tight or there's an injury that's being triggered or something. So that's my B. C is how can I use A to help B. And C is kind of like a coaching thing, which is why it's C. So when you start day six, before you even start your practice, you go through A, right, that's working, B, okay, got to work on that, C, this is what I want to do. So in, say in this example, C would be, 
I'm going to really, you know, choose a certain articulation from my pelvis down with my new sense of hips and knees and ankles so I can really focus in on my, you know, core and uh, how my pelvis and spine kind of fit together. So that would be that 100 days. And again, that could be standing meditation. It could be strength training. It could be yoga. It could be anything. Um, uh, I'm kind of doing a series on meditation. So as long as it kind of fits in with meditation, that's going to be appropriate for everybody. So besides going through a 100-day solo practice, obviously another way to deepen your practice with anything would be to go to a class. Now, if you're going to do strength training, you're going to be going to a pretty serious gym. If you're wanting to really deepen into certain qualities of meditation, maybe you're going to go to a retreat. Now, I mean, Vipassana retreats are getting pretty popular in the world, and I would recommend that for anyone to just get out there and really see, well, who is the one sitting there meditating? Uh, there's a lot of different kinds of classes, obviously, meditation, yoga, tai chi, qigong, martial arts, you know, pretty much anything that's uh, interesting to learn, there's going to be a class. But in making that commitment to show up on time, to, you know, pay attention in the class, to hopefully practice enough so that you can keep up with the process and progress of the class, um, that's another kind of commitment. And obviously that's going to deepen your training because of a kind of social accountability. And also you're going to get all kinds of mirrors with the other people in that class. You know, they're going to watch you learn as you learn. You're going to watch them learn as they learn. As the old saying goes, no one learns this by doing it right. So, you know, we have to kind of celebrate our mistakes as much as our, our wins. And that's the great thing about a class. When it comes to meditation, if you're going to really focus in on your practice, um, and this, of course, could be true of anything, but I'm kind of moving the conversation towards the meditation process. You have to decide what your committed meditation schedule is going to be because, I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, I'm into meditation or I took a class or I read a book or I sat on my couch and fell asleep, <laughs> you know, or something. And it's something else to actually have chosen an established practice. I mean, you could make one up, but I'm probably best to start with something that's pretty well established. And then commit if it's 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night or 20 minutes in the morning and at night. Maybe it's just once a week for 45 minutes. Maybe uh, you've got another rhythm that works for you. But until you're committed, scheduled, consistent, you're going to be missing this other opportunity, which is, you know, essentially you kind of have to get kind of married a little bit to what you're learning, which means you care for it. It cares for you. If you ignore it, then the relationship tends to end. So if you're really going to commit to meditation, as an opportunity to get really, really clear on who you are and what this is all about. And you have to figure out how to fit that into your life a little bit more formally. The idea of this again is the kind of this little well of mojo, this well of awareness that you can develop a kind of confidence through practice and through successful goal setting and goal meeting and, and gaining some kind of results. So when I say that with respect to meditation, there's often a little bit of a furrowed brow people tend to back up a little bit and say, but meditation isn't about comparison or competition or, you know, all of that kind of tooth and claw stuff. And for the most part, I agree, that's not really what it's about. But as a skill, uh, as an ability to govern the mind uh, in a way, you have to develop a kind of muscle and you're not going to do that reading books. I mean, that may give you some ideas and inspiration, but until you put it into practice, it's not really within you. So by doing these more committed kinds of practice, you will develop a memory of you as a being in the world that has the confidence, the capacity, the consistency, the commitment 
to show up to do your practice to get that result whatever that result may be even if it's just more subtle skills as uh you know with respect to say a breathing exercise or something but that becomes who you are so in the future if you do again choose to make some kind of uh next level decision you know if you're going to uh, go deeper into something, you know, the person making that discernment is a person who really has a kind of spiritual confidence. And that doesn't make you a person who has to be tough or in some way intimidating. It just means that when you look within, you see all of the memory and the benefit and the growth looking back at you, nodding, saying, yes, I would love some more. Let's go. So there's a lot of ways to, again, organize your practice. And I'm going to share with you a little parable kind of like story time if you will as far as i know this story parable is true um and it's a little bit edgy in a way so it, my opinion about politics has nothing to do with this this is more of a historical thing and obviously in the long run it's just about uh, offering you some uh i guess stimulation and and uh motivation to maybe shift your relationship with uh, your practice a little bit so here's the story it was probably the 1930s, I don't remember exactly when, when Japan actually invaded northern China. And, you know, it was just before World War II really got kind of, I think, beginning, began as sort of a political possibility. So um, what the Japanese had done uh, after they, had, I think they invaded Manchuria, um, they had started this sort of psychological warfare campaign. And one example that's been made famous even, I think, with Bruce Lee movie, uh, was when the Japanese were poisoning Chinese martial artists and then challenging them to competitions so that when the Chinese master got into the ring, you know, he was, you know, basically very sick. And then the Japanese martial artists could, you know, beat the crap out of them and, you know, raise their hands up and and kind of prove that all Japanese things are better than Chinese things. And this has not got anything to do with today, so please don't try and polarize modern Asia. This was almost 100 years ago. <laughs> um, so they actually had banners that they would hold up, you know, in the streets saying that the Chinese are the sick men of Asia. And I'm just saying that to frame kind of this unfortunate time uh, in, in history. But one other thing that had happened during this rather weird psychological warfare campaign was that they had found, the the Japanese army had found, uh, I think it was a Shinto monk, um, kind of a Zen monk, who had developed the skill, believe it or not, to sit on a bicycle um, without training wheels or kickstands or anything, go into a deep meditation and sit perfectly still on a bicycle, perfectly still in perfect balance, for seven hours. Now, that may or may not be literally true. I do not know. But this is an old oral tradition story, so it isn't about the those details exactly. So they had the, the Japanese army had basically told this guy, uh, if you don't come and do this, uh, you know, kind of psychological warfare campaign uh, around spiritual practice throughout China, we're going to burn down your monastery. So he said, oh, okay. <laughs> so what they did is they actually put this guy on a train from basically the east coast of China across northern China up into what's called Tianshan or the kind of the more upper western part of China. At every train station along the way, they would stop. He would get out. You know, there'd be signs all over the place letting people know that this was going to happen. So it was kind of like a carnival. 
Um, he would get on his bicycle. He would sit long enough to convince the crowd that this was a pretty amazing thing to be able to pull off. Uh, got off of his bicycle, got a translator, answered questions of the Chinese people, um, you know, all in the guile or the guise of this uh, campaign saying that China, the Chinese are the sick men of Asia. And, you know, obviously everything Japanese is better, so you should probably practice a Japanese religion because they're better. And weird as it is, that's, you know, one of the things that was going on. So he keeps going from train station to train station until he gets to the Tianshan. Uh, the, and if you can, just for the sake of fun imagery, imagine like a cowboy town, you know, mud everywhere and, you know, raised sidewalks or something. Uh, he gets off the train, gets on his bike, does his thing, uh, gets the translator and stands in front of the crowd and gets ready to answer some questions. And he looks to the other side of the train station and he sees this old man leaning up against one of the poles. Um, and, uh, you may or may not know this, but in traditional Taoism, there's an ethic of what we call discernible unrefinement, where you try and look a little schleppy or maybe you keep your hair a bit bedraggled or you don't tuck in your shirt or you tend to pick your nose and flick it at things or... Uh, it's just one of those ways uh, in that tradition that as you're moving through society, you know, you could be a Jedi in the sense of your actual uh, level of awareness or skills or whatever that might mean. Um, but in Taoism, it's to move through the world without the need or presumption that your external uh, sense of refinement is in any way going to help you in life. So anyway, there's this old schleppy looking dirty old man, <laughs> you know, on camp hair and clothing at the uh, other end of the train station. And the young monk being a really well-trained meditator could see that this old man really had some stuff going on. He was a pretty high level. So, um, you know, he kind of nodded to the old man and continued with his little uh, question and answering session with the uh, translator. And as the crowd got smaller, the old man walked, you know, a little bit closer, leaned up against another pole, picked his nose or something. And, uh, you know, as the crowd was almost gone, the young man, you know, I guess he was nervous or something, grabbed the translator and walked directly over to the old man and said, Venerable sir, um, you know, clearly, uh, you know, you're a master. And if there's anything a humble monk like myself could do for you, I'll do anything I can. And the old man is purported to have said, um, I have a question for you, but I don't want to ask it until the crowd leaves because I don't want to embarrass you. So the young monk finish up, finishes up his little talk. Uh, crowd goes away. He comes back. And now the old man is standing in his actual posture and stature and true uh, like energy as, as a, you know, I don't know, imagine a wizard or something really cool. And now the young man is facing this old, you know, Taoist sage and says, Venerable sir, please ask me your question. And the old man simply says, why do you stop? Why get off the bike? So obviously the moral of the story has a couple of parts to it. One is if you're in deep state, why would you set a time limit for it? You know, oh, well, I can do it for two minutes or two hours or two days. Um, that's just sort of a weird way to relate to it. You know, the other moral of the story is, and this is, I think, especially poignant for the West, which is why I share it with people, 
is we have the belief that, you know, your meditation practice is something that, you know, you do, you know, in a, in a hall or in that special room you've set up in, in your house or, uh, you know, only outside in the park or whatever it is that you may have framed that, that, you know, this is what meditation looks like. So, you know, you may have framed it in, in your mind to say, well, this is what meditation looks like. So now I'm meditating and now I'm going to go to work and drink my coffee as I drive down the road trying not to look at my phone. And now I'm something else. You know, meditation was from 7 to 7.15. It's 8.45 and now I'm the workaholic person, you know, honking my horn with impatience to get to work. So again, moral of the story is if you are a person who is investing in meditation, never stop at least in the sense of never stop relating to life as an, uh, uh, as a person who has a conscious attribute or say it another way, try to never bump into the world as an unconscious, you know, reactive person. And that's going to be your best teacher because it's going to keep happening. It keeps happening to me, but uh, usually I recover quicker than I used to. So the essence of this is uh, once you've really got into your meditation practice or your other practices, you need to learn to find a way to always keep that as kind of the, I don't know, for some reason the eye of the hurricane comes to mind right now, um, so that it's not up to anybody else. It's not up to whether or not you are going to have a good meditation practice today. It's that you're always in some way tethered to your meditation practice. And that's a really important thing to always be uh, connected in that way. It reminds me of a, a fairly advanced Taoist practice where you image that your umbilicus is going to reach towards the North Star. Uh, once you've made that connection uh, spatially, you would be, you know, as you wandered around doing your day, uh, you would always keep that association uh, as a tangible feeling in your body so that you always have a sense of being tethered to the source. I mean, that's actually in a way what the word religion means. Uh, it comes from religion, which means to, in a way, uh, to tie yourself to something that's of the origin, you know, or, or of, of essence. So, and I believe actually yoga has a similar translation in a way. Too. Um, so here we are in this conversation going... If you're going to commit to meditation as a part of the, you know, practical skill set you use to get through your life, you kind of have to eventually just decide to stay with it. And in my experience, the easiest way to keep that uh, going is what I call an awareness frequency practice, which simply requires you to pick a number of times a day, a number of seconds or minutes every time you check in, and then just the commitment and the consistency to do that. The first time I did this, and it's a bit of a long story, so I won't get into it right now, but I'm sure I'll find a reason to share it with you someday. Um, I was working in this factory, and it was a very stressful job, and I had just come back from a very deep meditation uh, hermit kind of Taoist priest initiation thing. So it was quite a, a, I don't know, rude awakening in the sense of, you know, no electricity, no people for weeks, and then running a factory with machines and noise and people and stuff. So it was jarring enough that I really did feel kind of a survival need to keep my practice, you know, really close. So what I started doing was going to the washroom every hour for two minutes. And for the entire time I worked in that factory, well, I was actually saving up some money so I could study Chinese medicine. Um, that's what I did. I mean, I just every day you know, that propelled in me a, a very different 
relationship with things because again, having just come out of hermitage to industrial life, being able to touch in with my meditation every hour, although I was still training about six hours a day in the sense of, uh, you know, the rest of my, my life, it really felt necessary to just stay, you know, in that tethered relationship with the depth of meditation that I was um, kind of trying to resource at that time in my life. And again, at that time in my life, life, I was actually studying to be a priest. So I guess I wasn't um, fooling around, as they say. So question is for you, uh, given your schedule, your family, your work, um, your commute, your uh, no reliance on technology and things like that. Uh, question is, is what would work for you? What would really fit in nicely? You know, and now we have apps and we have watches that beep and we have, I don't know, you could probably get an app on your phone that would send you a friendly, I don't know, quote of wisdom every two hours or something with a reminder to spend a minute uh, being really deeply conscious. Now, having shared the bathroom story, I, I don't mean to suggest that you need to, you know, leave every environment that you're in and go and isolate yourself to have your awareness frequency practice. I mean, as a clinician now, I can sit there and while I'm charting, you know, my patient files between patient uh, visits, I can choose to be very aware of my posture, very aware of my breath, very aware of my mindset, how much of whatever worries and decisions I have to make, you know, like carrying that around like in a little red wagon and making myself feel weighed down, or do I know exactly what I need to do about that? Or have I decided not to decide and I've just left that for later? And that's really the skill of being a mindful person. But each of us has, I would say, like the yin and yang kind of diagram, a certain amount of momentum towards negativity and a certain amount of momentum towards awareness. And uh, we each have to work that out day to day. I mean, if I don't get a good night's sleep for two or three nights in a row, it's a pretty dark day, but at least I can keep resourcing my particular, you know, well of Zen and mojo and confidence to try and, you know, go through, get through it. Um, those days are definitely the days where I'm much more selfish about what I commit to or, um, uh, I guess, or how personally involved I decide to get into the situations I'm in because I'm tired. That's just how things go for all of us. So it's going to always wax and wane in the sense of what you can predict you're going to get uh, as an experience, you know, as a, a meditator. But I'd be really curious, you know, with respect to the comments, um, you know, under this blogcast podcast thing, uh, if you have a certain rhythm that you find works for you, please share it with other people just so that they can see that other people are applying this and getting some kind of result. And also I'm just personally quite curious what other people have found works for them because maybe I'll borrow it myself. So that's basically what an awareness frequency practice is. Fundamentally, it's a way to encourage you and support you at going deeper into whatever practice you choose. Right? You could choose 100 days, you could go to an ashram, um, you could go camping. There's all kinds of ways to just create a, a lot more space in life for our practices. But the main thing is, it's up to you to make the discernment between that whole on-off switch with consciousness, with being a mindful person, with being conscious, and finding ways over and over again throughout your day, throughout your week, to make, you, make sure you can check in and tangibly 
like physically, somatically, uh, emotionally, and mentally feel a, a fairly tangible state shift into a meditation. So I'll close this up with, a, I guess, two things. One, often when I'm talking to meditators that I meet in life, and maybe they you know, have a very different background or tradition, um, but they were talking and I, they asked me for some advice or something. Uh, my first thing that I mentioned to anyone in the general sense of meditation is always start in the middle. So if you're a meditator and you've committed like 40 minutes a day for any period of time, for that first while, you know, the first 10 minutes is its own particular hell. And then the last 10 minutes is another kind of hell because, you know, we're trying to get ourselves into the practice. And then as soon as we get close to the end of the practice, the mind is like, is it done? Should we go? What are we going to have for breakfast? So if you're kind of aiming for the middle of your meditation, then uh, it's a little bit of a hack, a little bit of a joke, actually, to just remind yourself that it's really just a state. You know, there is a process in life, but that process is always going to be fueled by a state. And that state is kind of the middle of your meditation. So if you can, every day, whatever number of times a day, drop in for a minute you know, you're standing in the lineup, you're waiting for your kettle to boil, uh, you're waiting at the stop sign or something like that. If you have even 10, 15 seconds, you could do one meaningful respiration in the middle of a meditation that just brings you right back to the center of yourself. So if you think about going through your day, say you get to work and you're doing your typical eight hour day, you're either going to go kind of like gradual stairs, you know, 9, 10, 11 o'clock, and every hour your stress experience and threshold and physiology goes up a notch. And by the end of the day, you're, you're kind of already stressing out. So when you come home, of course, you're naturally going to be impatient and frustrated and probably wanting some alone time. And uh, if you have family and kids, you're not really at the best with yourself. So great time to go and take a little power nap and, you know, get your patience back. So imagine if you get to work and now you've decided to bring your awareness frequency practice into your life and it's 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 o'clock and you're still in that same place that you got to in your meditation that morning or a week ago. Sounds impossible, but it's very, very doable. And the idea is that as you're driving home or walking home from your you know, school or work and you get home, you should be in a very patient, kind, open, embracing, welcoming generous place because you're good you know you're you you're calm your humor is there uh and that's why people meditate because it's i know i think i mentioned before i call it universe grease it just lets all the friction you know car accident stagnation stuff just keep moving and that's important so the last thing i'm going to bring up it's going to sound like a commercial so feel free to <laughs> click this off if you don't want to hear me talk about things that i'd like you to consider uh, if you go on my website, which is integrativehealthsolutions.ca, um, and, uh, look for the applied meditation page, um, you can check that out because we're actually launching a meditation program in October, 2017. Obviously, I don't know when you're going to hear this, but, uh, it's early September <laughs> and, uh, I'd really encourage you to consider looking at that. Uh, it's 10 weeks and it goes through many different systems of meditation. It got, offers a lot of different uh, opportunities to bring this practice into your life from and pretty much in any part of your life. So if you're a person who's really not a fan of just 
you know, sitting still as your meditation, or you're more curious about other traditions and practices, you're wondering what walking, lying, sitting, standing, moving meditation means, what shamanic meditation might mean, um, you know, how to use intention, how to release trauma. There's a lot of different subtle things that you can bring into your practice, and they all fall under the umbrella of meditation. So uh, if you're looking for that kind of support, go to my website, type in uh, 10 weeks of applied meditation uh, and check it out. And uh, having said that, if you're a meditator or a yoga teacher, qigong teacher, tai chi teacher, and you think that you'd like to be more of service in the world, uh, we're also developing that program as an applied meditation coach program. So for people who actually want to go for about a 10-month uh, deeper dive into the practice uh, and all of the stuff that is taught in that course, but also with regular conversations uh, as a group uh, with me and other mentors on how to actually be a very effective meditation teacher, which in a way is kind of like being a clinical counselor. You just don't have to do the talk therapy part. And there are a lot of people who've tried talk therapy. You know, they spend a hundred bucks an hour for 15 years and probably bought somebody a boat. And it wasn't really about uh, that so much for them. So if you're a person who feels that, you know, you'd like to actually be more of support in people and have another way uh, to make some work happen in your life, then coaching people one-on-one -on -one or even in groups uh, as an applied meditation coach might be a really great way to go. Uh, it's one of my favorite things in my practice is if I'm sitting down with someone and, you know, maybe they're the last person you'd expect to find in a meditation class, and we find ourselves doing a 15-minute meditation class so that um, they actually have a sense of what the experience is like. Because a lot of people mainstream, if I can use that word without sounding judgy, uh, a lot of our kind of mainstream population just thinks it's some kind of weird cult religion, you know, uh, waste of time, you know, or the people who are physically restless or relatively impatient are just loath to even think of sitting still. And again, that's only one form of meditation. So, uh, keep all that in mind. Uh, hope you're enjoying the blog casts. So uh, we'll be back at the microphones soon with uh, myself and Anthony Sauna. So looking forward to that. Uh, hope you're well and, uh, stay present. Be well and feel awesome.